This morning, I want to start us out with a quote from what is probably a well-known name for many of you, Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you will know a bit of her story, uh, chiefly how in 1967, at 17 years old, she dove into a body of water, misjudging the depth, and broke her neck, and has spent the last 56 years as a quadriplegic. And yet, God has used her in immense ways to write movie or to write books and to help be involved with some movies of her life, to start a ministry, ministering to those with special needs. Uh, but, but in a book here that, uh, that I really appreciated entitled Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies by Mark Brokop, she writes the foreword and she expresses the pain of that original situation in her life. Let me read a portion of this, and I want us to consider this in light of Psalm 41. She says this, when a broken neck ambushed my life and led me or left me quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. At night, I would thrash my head on the pillow, hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my misery. After I left the hospital, I refused to get out of bed. I told my sister, just close the drapes, turn out the light, and shut the door. My paralysis was permanent, and inside, I died. You don't have to be in a wheelchair to identify. You already know that sad situations sometimes don't get better. Problems don't always get solved. Conflicts don't get fixed. Children die, couples divorce, and ultimately death rocks our world and shakes our faith. We try to manage like jugglers spinning plates on long sticks. When we feel utterly overwhelmed, we try soaking in the tub, sweating on the treadmill, splurging on a new dress, or heading to the mountains for a weekend. We smile and say we are trusting God, but deep down we know it's a lie. We're only trusting that he doesn't load us up with more plates. Can you resonate with Johnny Tata's words there? Have you ever felt that way? Felt like the limit of your trust in God was simply that he wouldn't give you any more pain to deal with? Have you ever wondered how to move beyond that as a believer and as a Christian? Johnny goes on in her book, or in this book. She says, that's how I felt. But after weeks in bed, I got tired of being depressed, and I finally cried out, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. It was just the prayer God was waiting for. From then on, I would ask my sister to get me up, park me in my wheelchair in front of my Bible. Holding a mouth stick, I would flip this way and that, looking for answers, any answer. I sought the help of a Christian counselor friend who took me directly to the book of Lamentations. He showed me the third chapter. I am the man who has seen affliction. Surely against me, God turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Lamentations 3, 1 and 3. I marveled thinking, that's me. I was amazed to learn that God welcomes our laments. I would eventually learn mainly through Lamentations and the Psalms that nothing is more freeing than knowing God understands. When we are in pain, God fills the sting in his chest. Our frustrations and questions do not fluster him. He knows all about them. He wrote the book on them. More astoundingly, he invites us to come and air our grievances before him. Later in the book, Mark Brokop defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. To lament is a thoroughly biblical, thoroughly Christian thing to do. And furthermore, it's something that David models so well here in Psalm 41. Because Ian and Lisa have already read the text, we'll just walk through it together as I preach it, but let's begin with a word of prayer as we invite the Spirit to help us in studying this text. 
Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning, for the joy of another day. As your word says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sing that, we praise you for that. We also recognize that many or most or even all of us walk in this morning carrying real troubles and pains, real challenges and sadness from this life, real trials, temptations to walk away from you and to seek hope and help in other things in this life. I pray that as we study Psalm 41 together, we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that you would help us to rightly understand your word correctly, and that you help us to fall upon your grace in our time of need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as many of you are aware, if you've been with us over the course of the last few weeks, we've started this sermon series entitled Messiah, Worshiping the Lord's Anointed One, here as we've walked through different psalms in our time together this, this morning over the last month or so. Um, as we introduced the series, we talked about Psalm 1 and these two different ways to live, this diverting path where you get to choose whether you're going to live according to the Word of God or you're going to live according to the wisdom of the world. In Psalm 2, we were introduced to the Lord's Anointed One, Christ who reigns supremely over all of creation and the nations. In Psalm 69, we ran into our first imprecatory psalm as we cried out, God, save me. Psalm 40 was the last lamentation psalm we talked about, and we discovered that Christ delighted to do the will of his Father. And then last week in Psalm 18, we got a bit of a reprieve from the downer, and we got a praise psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now this week, we turn our attention back to a psalm of lament, a psalm that deals with some harsh realities and some difficult circumstances. In Psalm 41, David comes face to face with sickness, with slander, with betrayal, and even the possibility of his own death and demise. And yet, in all that, he models for us how to seek, how to recognize our need for, and how to celebrate God's gracious hand in all of it. Look with me to Psalm 41 as he begins this verse with a familiar phrase. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. The first step in seeking God, he recognizes this blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, this should be a familiar phrase to us. Do you recall the last time we talked about this? In Psalm 1, we saw the exact same phrasing. Remember, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We defined blessed as happy, as fortunate, as experiencing the life and joy of living continually in the presence of God. And in Psalm 1, that joy was derived from living our lives in accordance with God's Word. There's a little bit of a different flair here in this verse, as in Psalm 41, the blessing, the joy, the happiness comes from, quote, the one who considers the poor. It's also worth noting as we dive into this that Psalm 41 functions as the end of the first book of the Psalms. For those of you that are unfamiliar, Psalms breaks up into five different kind of sub-books. Psalm 1 begins with a blessing, and Psalm 41 ends with a blessing and kind of bookends this whole first section. And he says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now we have to take a moment and we have to define this rightly to understand this. What is he talking about when it comes to the poor? We initially think of those that are financially poor, those that are destitute, and while that would maybe be included, that's not so much what this word is referring to. You probably have a note in your Bibles with something that says like weak or helpless down at the bottom in your footnotes. 
This word carries the idea of those that are weak, those that are helpless, those that are powerless. And so he says, there is a blessing, there is a happiness available to those that consider those that are helpless, those that are powerless. Throughout the Bible, the Bible puts a premium on on helping the needy, identifying and helping those that are in difficult situations. And it's interesting to note that here, the word is the one who considers the poor. So what he's talking about here is not the idea of a passing nod, the idea of throwing some change at someone who is panhandling along the side of the road. This idea of consider is more genuine care and the seeking of relief. One who takes stock of the needs of a person and steps into that situation to help the hurting. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. His point here is that the grace we have received from God ought to be evidenced in the way we treat those in need. Ask yourself that question. Do I respond to people in need with the same sort of grace that God has showed me in my time of need? He said, blessed are those who consider the poor. But what is the psalmist's justification for this action? What does he ground this truth in? In verses 2 through 3, we see how it is because God has treated us that way. Look at verse 1, he read, or we read this, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Here we see at least three different actions of God for someone in need, the psalmist himself, David. First, it says that the Lord delivers him from the day of trouble. The Lord comes in and saves him and rescues him out of this time of trouble. Now, it's worth noting, as many times we're going to run into this sort of phrasing in the Psalms, that this isn't a promise of a happy life and deliverance from all of our circumstances today. The psalmist anticipates a future deliverance, but that is not a promise we claim and tell God, you must be delivering me tomorrow. So first, God delivers. But second, in verse 2, God protects and keeps. Look at verse 2. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. It says those that follow the Lord are not given over to their enemies, much as their circumstances in life might feel that way. Have you ever felt as though things were out of control? As though God wasn't really on his throne? As though he wasn't the really the one orchestrating the events and circumstances of your life? The psalmist here is reminded that the Lord protects him and keeps him. The Lord is on his throne and his will is being done in David's life. Then lastly, he sustains and restores him. This is a comforting image in verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to to full health. Excuse me. The imagery here is actually really interesting. This term of sustaining him on his sickbed is actually the image of like, like almost like a nurse reaching down to like tuck you in, to like comfort you and protect you. And it's a fascinating image here where the Lord sustains him. The Lord almost nurses him on his sickbed. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts this when he says, the promise is not that generous saints will have no trouble, but that they will be preserved in it and in due time brought out of it. This is the promise that we are offered. This is what we are called to seek here in verses 1 through 3. God's grace in our lives is a double blessing. Not only do we experience the blessing of God's protection and his deliverance in our lives, 
but we also have the blessing of passing that sort of grace and care onto others as well. Paul said it well in his book to the, or his second letter to the Corinthians. Turn to the right in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We covered 1 Corinthians here a few months ago, and we wrapped up the end of that book. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul makes a really fascinating comment. In 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul articulates a very similar sentiment. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul makes a really fascinating comment here. He says, God uses the afflictions that you experience in your life to teach you how to rely on God and to teach you how to show that same sort of grace to other people. That's the same sort of thing that David is arguing for here in Psalm 41. When he's arguing that the one who is, or is blessed of God who shows care to the needy, to the poor, because he has been shown grace by God. Consider this for a moment. Ask yourself the question, do you seek to see God's grace even in the trials and pain in your life? Do you recognize God's deliverance, his protection, his sustaining grace in your life when times are difficult? Do you seek that out or do you sit in your pain and dwell on that experience? Here, David encourages us to show grace to others because we've been shown grace even in our trials. In addition to that, he encourages us to seek out the poor, the weak, the helpless. There are a few things more Christian than to seek out those in need and to seek to minister to them. And it's amazing what seeking out those in need will do for our own pain and struggle as well. So ask yourself the question, do I seek out those that this psalm would define as the poor, the weak, the needy, the struggling? Do I seek to extend the same grace into their life and hope and help into their life that God has shown me in my life? The psalmist holds out this blessing as available to us saying happy and joyful is the one that extends the sort of grace that they have been shown. We should seek to identify God's grace in our life and extend that grace to others around us. And one of the key ways that God teaches us to be gracious to other people in our lives is by giving us experiences of weakness ourselves. Is that not true? Most of us on our best days would define ourselves as strong, as secure, as independent and able to navigate life by and large in our own strength. And God looks at those circumstances and frequently seems to give us something to remind us that we need him. It may be a physical issue. It may be a spiritual issue. It may be an emotional challenge. God says, let me teach you how to be gracious through experience. We see that in verses 4 through 10, that David was experiencing this need for God's grace as well. Notice that this section is bookended by a repeated request. He says, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. 
Verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Then down in verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. He expresses his needs for God's grace. But before we get to the actual request, I want us to take a moment and look at the source of this need. In verses 4 through 9, David defines what the need is that he has. First, he describes his circumstances. Look at 4b. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. David's circumstances are dire in Psalm 41. We're not entirely sure whether his issue, his illness here is physical or simply spiritual. And regardless, it doesn't really make any difference because he notes that the definition, the reason for that, the reason he is in the situation he is in is because he has sinned against you. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 how God sometimes uses our physical health issues to show us our spiritual need, how he does that to the church in Corinth. It doesn't mean that every time we get a sniffle, I mean, I'm sick right now, we should go looking for some spiritual issue. But David rightly recognizes that part of the reason he's in the circumstances he is is because of his own sin. He recognizes that he has sinned against God, for I have sinned against you. David acknowledges his sin is the reason he is where he is. There's no self-righteousness. There's no conceit in David. And how often is that true for us? How often is it true that the circumstances that give us the most pain in life are a direct result of our own sin? We all have been guilty of this. We all have struggled with this. And rather than justifying himself, David says, Heal me, for I have sinned against you, Lord. So his circumstances are one source of his need. But he goes on because his enemies are taking advantage of his illness, of his circumstances. And we see his enemies slander in verses 5 through 8. Read this. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. In addition to his circumstances being dire and him being ill, potentially terminally ill, his enemies take advantage of this fact and they begin to slander him, right? They speak malice against him. My enemies say of me in malice, when will his die and his name perish? They want nothing more than David to be out of the way. Even when they come to visit him, they're disingenuous, right? Verse 6, when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. He uses everything that David says to him to his disadvantage, because then he goes on, and he goes out and he shares it with everybody. He comes and feigns as if he cares for David, but then he goes out and he tells everybody what he wants to tell them. And ultimately, the biggest offense is probably the fact that he wants him dead. David's enemies desire for him to die. Did you see that in verse 8? They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. Clearly, God is judging him. He will not rise again from where he lies. If only God would kill David. It ushers up for me the imagery of the, you've probably read or, or seen one of the movies of A Christmas Carol. Have you seen that movie? Okay, full, full disclosure, I have not read the book, A Christmas Carol, but I have seen the Muppet movie, okay? So for those of you like me that have seen the Muppet movie, there's a wonderful scene in the Muppet movie after Scrooge 
um, he, he's met with the ghost of Christmas past, and he's met with the ghost of Christmas present, and then he's meeting with the ghost of Christmas future, right? And I'm not espousing the ghosts and all that. Like, you guys understand what I'm saying. It's just a story. But it's this image, and, and the ghost of Christmas future takes him to what his funeral was going to be like. You remember this scene? And in the Muppet movie, at least, there's these four pigs, and it's raining, and they're talking, right? They're talking about Scrooge's funeral. And they're talking about how few people were there because nobody really appreciated him. And they wonder what's going to happen to his money because he clearly wasn't using it correctly. And they, they mock the fact that he's dead and nobody really cared about him. David here is not yet dead, and yet his enemies are speaking about him in exactly the same way. See, God clearly didn't care about him. He was clearly in the wrong. He was clearly out to lunch. In fact, I think God should just go ahead and finish the job and bury him. Imagine the way that would have felt to David. Imagine the way that you would feel if people were talking that way about you. I love the way Spurgeon puts this as someone that was not a little bit acquainted with criticism. He writes this, It is perfectly marvelous how spite spins webs out of no materials at all, or whatever. It is no small trial to have base people around you lying in wait for every word which they may pervert to evil. How far abroad people will go to punish or to publish their slander. A little fault is made much of, a slip of the tongue is a libel, a mistake a crime, and if a word can bear two meanings, the worse is always fathered upon it. It is base to strike a man when he is down, yet such is the meanness of mankind toward a Christian hero, should he for a while chance to be under a cloud. I know the language is a little bit antiquated, but I love the way Spurgeon writes that. Of his own experience, of David's experience from Psalm 41 of being criticized and critiqued and longed for his death by his enemies. And it gets even worse than that. It gets even more difficult than being slandered by his enemies in verse 9. Even his friends jump on the bandwagon. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Just to add injury to insult, just to make his issues more pronounced, his circumstances more difficult, not only are his enemies criticizing him, but his own friend has betrayed him. The one who ate my bread, indicating close fellowship and relationship. That is the very one who lifts his heel against me, indicating violence and betrayal. It is the close companion who turns on David in his time of need. Much like if you recall from Job how after Job has experienced trial after trial after trial from the Lord, what do his friends and wife do? Just stick that knife in and twist a bit. Give him a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it, right? They say, as if your circumstance isn't bad enough, it's actually your own fault. God, or Job, just curse God and die already because you're the one to blame here. Imagine what that would have felt like in Job's position to have his closest confidant, his wife, turn on him and say, Job, you're out to lunch. I wish you would just die. That's David's experience here in verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
not only is David suffering, but he feels as though everyone has abandoned him and forsaken him. No one cares, not even his closest friends. And a result of that, as a result of the way he's being treated, he recognizes the only place he can go to for help, and he looks to God in prayer. Verse 4 and 10, the request is the same, his prayer, his request from God, his need for God. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. And then down in verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. He orients his heart and his mind toward God as his only source of help. And he requests that God would show him grace, that God would restore him, that God would save him. He says, God, be gracious to me. Because nobody else right now is. Nobody else is showing me pity, is showing me mercy. God, I need your help. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever felt yourself in a moment where you knew the only one you could genuinely turn to was God? If God has never brought you to the end of your rope and the end of your resources, let me assure you at some point in your life he will. He will bring you to a point where God is your only hope of rescue. And David in this moment utters out to God, God, be gracious to me. I need your help and you're the only one that can bring it. He goes on and he says, raise me up. Bring me out of my circumstances. And then one final component that probably was a little strange to you as you were reading through this, if you read through it in advance. The reason he gives for being raised up in verse 10 is that I may repay them. And we go, aha! Now I can, I can get behind that verse, right? God, heal me so that I can take it out on that person. Okay, we're back to the imprecatory language. Next week, we're going to be back in another imprecatory psalm, a psalm asking for God's justice. But it's important to note that this phrase here is specific language used by David of an offense against one of God's appointed officers. David had been raised up as God's king, as his ruler, as his man, to promote good and to punish evil. And he calls out for God to do this because he wants to do the job that God has called him to do. This is not a petty vendetta. This is not David asking for God to allow him to take out his vindictive payment on those people that are hurting him. Saying, God, raise me back up to my position as king so that I can do justice the way I've been called to do justice as your king. The prayer is made for God's glory, not for personal vengeance. We'll talk about that more next week as we're back into another imprecatory psalm. But David's heart here, you can feel it, right? David cries out to God for rescue and for restoration. He said, I have no one else to turn to, God. Only you can help me in this circumstance. I think he models for us how we can express our pain and our need for grace to God. Sometimes we feel like we've got to hold it back. We've got to keep from telling God what we're actually feeling, as if we could hide that from God anyway. David expresses this raw emotion, his desperate need for God here in these verses. We can express our pain and our need for God's grace even when we feel alone, even when we feel abandoned, even when our situation is the result of our own sin. That is critical for us to keep in mind. We want to hide these things from God. We want to protect him. 
Who do we really think we're protecting? God can handle it. God knows what we're feeling. He knows what we're going through. He identifies with it more than anybody else who has ever lived. We have to learn to lament the way the psalmists do. For too long, we have struggled in the American church with convincing ourselves that life is just always happy-go-lucky. In fact, when I started introducing this sermon series, I remember I, Troy and I were having conversations going, well, what can we sing that's a lamentation? We have to go back like 100 years to find a song that's a lamentation. We struggle with a theology of suffering and pain in the Western church today. And David models how we go through pain and how we lament here in this psalm. He begins by saying we confess our need for grace. We orient our heart toward God and we say, God, I need your help. I need your mercy. I need your protection in this moment. Only you can save me. He starts by orienting his heart toward God. From there, he then moves on to expressing his pain and his need to God. He says, Lord, I am in this situation. This is what I'm experiencing. I need you. I need your help in this moment. Without you, I don't stand a chance. We have to learn to walk through these steps when we're going through trials and pain. We have to learn as a first instinct not to keep working under our own strength and just battling it out and just stiff up our lip and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but instead to pause, to stop, and to orient our heart toward God and say, God, I need you. I am not in charge of my circumstances. I am not in charge of anything in this life. I need you. And it's one of the most humbling experiences we can ever go through in this life, when God is our only source of hope. And yet he uses that to teach us how to be gracious toward other people, how to minister to other people in times of need and pain and hurt. We must never be hesitant to express a need for grace to God. But lamenting involves more than even acknowledging God's sovereignty and expressing our needs to him. Anybody can complain. To lament is strictly Christian. And like the vast majority of laments in the Bible, David's final words turn and express trust in God, just as Troy mentioned. And we see celebrating God's grace, verses 11 through 13. David begins with the evidence of God's delight in his life. Verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. He grounds his trust and his worship of God in the fact that God will ultimately have the victory and he will not be defeated. And if David can celebrate God's ultimate victory over his enemies, how much more should we as New Testament saints? If you find yourself struggling to believe that God is in charge of what takes place in this world and in your circumstances, turn to the book of Revelation. You may not understand how everything lines up. You may not understand all of the imagery, but one thing is unavoidable in the book of Revelation. God wins. Christ wins. And when you find yourself struggling, saying, I don't know if God is present in these circumstances, read the book of Revelation. Christ wins we will know that God delights in us because his enemies will not shout in triumph over us. Christ wins. And he goes on from there in verse 12 to say, but you, he speaks back to God here at this moment, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence 
forever. He speaks of the reason for God's protection, how God has upheld him, as God has held him up. If he didn't have God's support, he would fall over. He stresses God's provision in his life here and then says, he he speaks to his own integrity. He says, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. He says again that he is not guilty of the charges that he has been assaulted with by his enemies. But did you pick up the ultimate result here? You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forevermore. And here David gives a bit of a key to the heart, the result, the desire of his heart to be in the presence of God. His ultimate aim, even as he's going through trials and difficult circumstances, is to draw near to God, to be close to God. When was the last time when you were going through a difficult circumstance, or circumstance, you looked at your circumstance through the light of what is God trying to do in me to draw me near to him? How is God using the circumstances and the trials I'm walking through today to make me lean on him? David's heartfelt desire is that he would be set in the presence of God forever. And then the psalm, and really this entire first book of the 41 psalms, concludes with a final doxology. Now you remember, I mentioned doxologies last week, as opposed to benedictions. A doxology is an expression of worship and a declaration of God's character. Look at verse 13. He responds to God's grace in his life in worship. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. He celebrates two things here in verse 13. He celebrates first the name of God. Your Bibles will have Lord, blessed be the Lord, four capital letters. That's an indication in your Bibles of God's covenant name, Yahweh. He says, blessed be God, the covenant faithful God, the one who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever that we talked about last week. And it's worth noting here that when he says, blessed be the Lord, he's connecting it to the beginning of the psalm. But whereas in verse 1, the blessing is a receiving of joy from the Lord, here in verse 13, this blessing is not adding anything to God. He's not saying as if somehow God is deficient of joy and happiness and blessing. We acknowledge not add to God's blessedness. He's saying, God, you are worthy. You are absolutely worthy of my praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he celebrates God's eternality as well, from everlasting to everlasting. Think about how, as you go through a trial, a difficult experience in your life, how remembering that God is eternal changes the way you view your circumstances. God has always been, God will always be, and your circumstances are this much of that slice. God has gone before everything that you've ever experienced. He will be there long beyond everything in this world is gone. And you're focused in on this circumstance, this momentary blip in the history of time. He declares God's eternality here. We should marvel at God's eternal nature. We should be absolutely blown away by the fact that we can say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. This should cause us to worship. This should cause us to wonder. This should cause us to pause even when we're struggling. And this is the heart of the fact. Trust comes when we recognize God's character even in the pain. 
The reason the lament psalms so often turn toward the end of the psalm is because our own fickle nature needs something to ground us in, and that is God's character. We need something to remind us that the pain is not all there is, that though the pain is screaming in our ear, there is a greater truth, a greater reality than what we're experiencing today. Much like holding your breath. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to hold your breath for very long. Maybe you were swimmers or divers or people like that. There's a fascinating experience when it comes to holding your breath, and physiologically, some interesting things happen. If you begin holding your breath, and chances are, if I asked everyone here to hold their breath, after about 30 seconds, 75% of us would be like calling it quits, right? Because at about 30 seconds, there's some receptors in our body that, that basically can tell that the CO2 levels are getting too high, and they scream out to us, you're going to die, and we breathe, okay? Let's assume you can get past that first 30 seconds. At about three minutes, your body then begins to sense that your O2 levels are dropping way too low. And involuntarily, your diaphragm will begin to spasm, trying to desperately get you to breathe, because it's saying, you're going to die. And yet, there are people that can hold their breath for minute after minute after minute after minute. The world record is about 11 and a half minutes of someone holding their breath underwater. How is that possible? How is that possible? Because through practice and through mental training and through rehearsing this and through training their body physically, they can teach their body you're not actually going to die at 30 seconds. And when the body is screaming out to me or to, out to them, take a breath, you're about to die, they know it's not true. And they can sit underwater like I said, the, I think the world record holder is about 11 and a half minutes because they have rehearsed training their body that the pain is not all there is, that the pain is telling you something that isn't actually true. You're not actually going to die after 30 seconds. Lament functions in much the same capacity. It's training our heart, training our mind, training our spirit to remind ourselves of the truth of who God is. That though the pain and the experience we're going through is screaming to us, you're going to die. God is faithful. We can trust God's character. We can trust who he is through all of life's difficult circumstances. So we can rest in God's provision. Saying, I know you're faithful. I know you will take care of me. We can seek God's presence to be set in the presence of God forever and to focus on being near to God as we go through the pain. And we can celebrate God's character and worship even when we're going through a difficult circumstance by rehearsing again and again and again how to lament and the way the Bible models that for us. In Psalm 41, David models how we lament in times of trouble. He reminds us how we need God's grace and we have received God's goodness and we need to orient our hearts toward him. He models for us how we honestly express our need and our pain and our difficulty to God. And then lastly, how we fix our minds on the truth of who God is, resting in his provision and his justice. And few things model this so well as how this psalm finds its fulfillment in Christ. Did you pick up on the messianic language in Psalm 41? In verse 9, we read this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. John, in his gospel, picks up on this language and says, that was said of Christ. 
Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, John picks up on this language and he says this was intended to be understood of Christ. This is fascinating here. You're probably familiar with John 13. John 13 is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and tells them that they should be servants and love one another the way God has loved them, the way Christ has loved them. And then we read this really interesting section, and you'll notice the language from Psalm 41 as soon as I read it. Let me start in verse 12. John 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am he, or for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, may all, or that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. John picks up on this language from Psalm 41 of a close friend's betrayal, and he says, that was Judas for Christ. That was Judas for Christ. And verse 21 through 30 speak of Judas then going out and selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver. The one whom Christ had spent two and a half years side by side with is the close friend that had eaten his bread that lifted his heel up against Christ. I want us to consider this for a moment because we read over that so quickly. Jesus knew Judas's betrayal was coming. Think about that. From a young age, Christ had read Psalm 41. And every time he read Psalm 41, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Every time that Jesus sits down and shares a meal with his disciples, he remembers Psalm 41 and that the one over there eating with him is the one that's going to kiss him off. And yet he never quits loving and serving Judas. He even washes his feet at the beginning of chapter 13. In spite of the fact that as he washed Judas's feet, he knew Judas was going to head out of there and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Think about that. Think about that as an act of grace, as an act of love, as Christ's love for us. In Psalm 41, we find a model for how we lament and express pain to God. And that's extremely helpful in our Christian life or in our Christian lives. But in Psalm 41, we also find an anticipation of one of the greatest acts of betrayal in the history of mankind. A close friend who would turn and spit on Jesus. And we see one of the greatest acts of grace that has ever taken place in the history of the world. Can we do any less? Let's pray. Father, we have dealt with some difficult subjects this morning. Psalm 41 brings heartache and pain to our minds. Circumstances that I'm sure are flooding each and every one of our thoughts situations that we wish were different and we cry out much the way Johnny Erickson Tata did, saying, God, teach us how to live. We don't know how to live with the pain and the challenges we face in this life. Lord, I do pray that 
the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of lament, would become a model for us of how we express our pain and our need to you, that we would find shelter and rest in you and your character. Lord, that we would be reminded of the model of Christ, how we exemplified grace even against a close friend who betrayed him. I pray, Lord, that that would be true of us, that we would follow in his footsteps, that we would learn to lament the way you've given us the model of lament in Scripture. For your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.